I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, I, I think it was because of racial issues. It was a game, it was a marginalised group of people, Aboriginals, and low socioeconomic also play, played a part. People didn't care because people couldn't relate. Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet. And I'm Tim Watson Munro. In last week's ep, we spoke to Gary Jubelin, who's an ex-New South Wales homicide detective. Many of you will obviously be aware of Gary anyway in his space. He does his own podcast. And we spoke to Gary in terms of his work on the Barrowville murders, which, if you remember, was the murder of three Indigenous children in Barrowville in New South Wales between 1990 and 1991. I worked that investigation from uh, late 96 until uh, I retired in 2019. So many developments that's happened on the on the investigation. Parliamentary inquiry, protests, uh, the parliamentary inquiry identified failings in the uh, initial uh, police response. We could have done it better. And it was really interesting hearing Gary's perspective on how they worked with that community, a very vulnerable community, and how they built trust over a long period of time to try and move those cases forward. But today we're going to be talking about policing vulnerable communities in a more general sense. Why and how that can go wrong in terms of the police procedure, how trust can be lost with these communities very easily if it's not handled well from the beginning. We're also going to be looking at the media and the public's interest in cases and how we weigh victims and our interest as a community in them. And I think Bowerville in many ways is a working model about what goes wrong in society. The great schism between white Anglo-Saxon people and how crimes against white Anglo-Saxon children are dealt with as opposed to vulnerable communities such as the Bowerville community. And I think it raises a lot of pressing questions. Tim, why do you think we know some victims' names and not others? And why do some cases and some people's stories resonate while others don't? It has a lot to do with how we as a society perceive the victim. If the victim is seen as a totally innocent, what criminologists describe as the ideal victim, they garner more sympathy and ultimately more attention from the media, the public and sometimes the police. I think you're right. And I think one of the cases that really exemplifies that is Jill Maher. And if you remember, this was the 29-year-old Irish woman who was murdered whilst living in Melbourne in September 2012. And her murder really became national news. The search for Jill Maher has come to a tragic end, with her body found in a shallow grave here in Gisborne South, about a 40-minute drive from where she was last seen in Sydney Road, Brunswick. She was buried several metres off the dirt road under a tall leafy tree. 41-year-old Adrian Ernest Bailey has been charged with the rape and murder of Jill Ma. She was what you describe as the ideal victim, totally blameless for her murder. And she was married, she was out just out with friends and she worked for the BBC, so is considered what, what the public would see as a respectable, in a respectable job. Um, and she was even occasionally on camera, so she had that slight celebrity factor. In passing, I, I'd forgotten about this, but I'd actually assessed the offender many years beforehand when he was a petty criminal. And someone pointed that out to me after the murder of Ma. A terrible case. And yes, she fitted the profile of the ideal victim. The media were all over that case uh, nationally. Yeah, so Adrian Bailey, what was interesting, he was actually already on parole for a number of sex offences when he killed Jill. Do you remember the outpouring of national grief that followed that tragedy? And particularly, I remember the day that Bailey was charged, which was back in late September 2012. 
Jill's name appeared around 12 million times in Twitter posts across that day. And 30,000 people took to the streets to honour Jill and to protest male violence. So obviously that's a a theme that we keep coming up again and again. And and it's been in discussion for over 10 years now, very significantly. I do remember it. And it garnered international interest as well because she was from Ireland, as I recall. The outpouring of grief was enormous. Uh, You know, she's a very attractive woman and I, you know, People seem to be drawn to these profiles. If they're not attractive, whatever that means, if they don't have a profile, um, they're less likely to get the sort of attention that she got. I think they should all get this sort of attention. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that time and time again. And with my students, I... I have this conversation quite regularly. We talk about Jill Maher and everyone knows who Jill Maher is, even though, you know, most of them were quite young, actually, when that happened. But we contrast that with the murder of Tracy Connolly. And many of you may not know Tracy's name. And she was the 40-year-old sex worker who was found murdered in a van in St Kilda in Melbourne on the 21st of July 2013. So only, like, a few months after Jill was killed. And although members of the Melbourne community were aware of Tracy's murder, there were no multi-state protests. The news coverage was very minimal, so people don't know Tracy's name. And her crime is still unsolved. So that's what I ask my students, you know, why do they know Jill Maher's name and they don't know the name of Tracy Connolly? And when I mention her, I'm just met with these blank faces. Well, she doesn't fit the profile of the ideal victim. Uh, she was a sex worker and she was not a story the media could pick up that would engage societal sympathy. Her murder went largely unnoticed and unsolved. And I wonder if that's partly because, you know, maybe the same resources are not put into these cases because around that time there were a number of sex workers that were killed in Melbourne and there didn't seem to be the same drive and certainly we didn't have thousands of people in Melbourne, in Sydney, taking to the streets to to protest and really call out this violence against a particular subgroup of the population. Yeah, it's as though they kind of deserve it in a way. They're involved in grubby business in the minds of some and there's this sort of moral overtone. Well, if you're doing this sort of work, you've got to expect to be murdered almost. Yeah, in criminology, it's what we call othering. It's a way of cognitive dissonance. You can separate yourself. That person is different to you. We can all imagine being Jill Maher, going out in the evening to meet friends, walking home. It's a totally innocent activity, anything that any woman should be able to do and remain unharmed. But I guess the issue with sex work, it is it is inherently dangerous. You are putting yourself in risky situations with strangers and it allows people to separate her behaviour from us. We go, well, we wouldn't do that. So therefore, you know, that's nothing to do with me. And you, they lose a sense of, I guess, respect for the victim, but also they don't feel the same level of distress that they did with Jill Maher's case. Well, they dissociate from it. It's a bit like watching a movie. We see all sorts of gruesome crime scenarios in the movies. We don't always feel empathy for the victim. And particularly in that scenario, um, people perhaps think, well, they're they're asking for it. If, If you don't want to get killed, don't engage in sex work or don't do this, don't do that. Yeah, and it goes back to waiting the victim, depending on what they were doing, where they were, what their activity was. And we still do it, you know, what people are wearing when they go out. These conversations are still, they still happen. Yes. And they shouldn't happen, but we know that they do because we know that the interest that's given to these cases is influenced by that victimology and how we rate that victim in terms of their own culpability. She was wearing a short skirt 
She was asking for it. Exactly. All this sort of nonsense. I've been hearing it all my life. Yeah. I don't think it's getting any better, actually. Well, I'd like to think it is, but, you know, I still think that women are judged on their behaviour and what they're doing and what they're wearing, and I think that does reflect in people's interest and sympathy that, that the victims then receive in these cases. But if we look at two children's cases briefly, so William Tyrrell, everyone will know about William Tyrrell, the little boy in, in the, the Spider-Man suit. Little boy in the Spider-Man suit, three years old, disappeared just over eight years ago now, and currently we don't know what happened to William. Compare that to the case of Cleo Smith. Now, if you remember, Cleo Smith was abducted whilst camping with her mother and mother's partner, and she was taken for 18 days before she was successfully thank God, successfully recovered physically unharmed. William is still a case that comes up in the media regularly, a lot of interest in that case, and I think part of the reason is because everyone can imagine that little boy in his Spider-Man suit, and, you know, it's a totally innocent activity, isn't it? He's at his grandmother's house and he vanishes. And A seemingly safe environment. Who hasn't taken their kids to visit Nana? Yeah. And you feel if they're playing in the front yard, they've got to be safe, they're supervised. And it's every parent's nightmare, every grandparent's nightmare. You know, if you have children, you think about your kids, it happens. And do you remember the amount of coverage that Cleo Smith got? I was doing interview after interview after interview when yes, she so disappeared. That's right. And then I remember the call I got the morning she was found. I got a phone call and it was only about 6.30 in the morning from a producer. I think that was Channel 7 Sunrise wanted to start the interviews because she'd been she'd been recovered and I couldn't believe it because, you know, that just doesn't happen. The abduction of a child by a stranger, we know the stats, the likelihood of them being safely recovered. Oh, it just, just doesn't happen. I remember it too. I was walking the beach at Byron and I had a call from the same crew, I think, and I said, you've made my Christmas. This is amazing. And uh, I raced home and did this interview using Skype or something in my bathers. Yeah, it was um, it was quite a moment, but everyone would have recognised those pictures. I still remember the pictures of the little girl smiling in her white T-shirt with the gold stars on it, and it got national coverage, international coverage, and I think you know it's those those pictures of these innocent smiling children that captivated the country and got everybody talking, and the whole country was celebrating when Cleo was successfully found physically unharmed. Do you remember the, that imagery that came out of the video when they recovered her and they asked, the officer asked her name? I got her. I got her. Hey, Bobby. Let's bring Hello. the camera in. Hey, Bobby. Come here. Come here. Yeah, Bobby. What's your name? You're all right. What's your name? What's your name, sweetheart? Um, my name is Cleo. Your name is Cleo. Hello, Cleo. It was a joyous time, but contrast that with uh, no such coverage for Colleen Walker, Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy Duray. Three young children murdered in Barrowville between September 1990 and February 1991. All three victims were Aboriginal and all three vanished after parties in the Barrowville's Aboriginal community known as the Mission. Their murders remain unsolved if three young white children had been abducted and murdered on the northern beaches of Sydney, it would make headlines and people would still be scurrying around wanting answers. And I think this really brings us down to the value that we attach to human life. And 
I'm interested to know your thoughts on, on why you think that we value some human lives differently, why we weight people's lives differently. And to go along with that, how much sympathy we give them and their stories and how much we take them into our hearts. We took Cleo into our hearts and William into our hearts. And does that come down to how much we can relate to them and their story, do you think? I think that's part of it. I think there's also a lot of dissonance in play. So if it's a child that you can relate to, because you may have children or grandchildren, there's a stronger point of connection. If there are people that are, you know, original Australians, they're living in communities and all the rest of it, they tend to shut down on that. They say, well, it's not our problem. And I think that's part of the dynamic as well. Whereas really, they're all little children. They all disappear. As you point out, we're dealing with a serial killer, three people at least that we know about, uh, never detected, and really not a lot of interest over those 33 years. There's been some agitation in more recent times, as you say, but it took a lot to get that interest uh, back, didn't it? You know, demonstrations in front of Parliament House, um, some great work by some police and so on. Yeah, I think real dedicated commitment to the case by those people, those champions. And I guess when it comes down to the amount of attention these cases get in the media, who is driving that? Is it the public who are not clicking on those stories, who are not interested, or is it the media assuming people aren't going to be interested so they're not picking the stories up? Or do you think it's, it's both? It's a chicken and egg argument. One can drive the other. So in Barraville, you know, it was the public and outrage and demonstrations reactivated police interest. But only a small part of the public. It wasn't Correct. everyone who was interested. Again, it's the, the relevant demographic that were protesting. They were the champions to get these children's cases back in the media and, again, back politically, make them relevant again to get some movement. Very different to Cleo Smith, where the whole country was engaged, I think, and it was pushed in the media. It was the lead story all the time. And certainly when she was found, uh, the networks and everyone else went crazy about it with relief. But with the... Uh, Barraville kids, I suspect even if they were found, it may not have registered with people. Quite different. And do you think this also plays out in the way that the police interact with these cases and victims and the families of these victims? We, the same maybe prejudices that we see reflected in the public and the same dissonance that we see in the public with that element of othering that I mentioned, does that affect some police officers, do you think, in the way that they run their investigations? I think that that is the case, whether there's conscious or unconscious bias, prejudice, racism. Uh, people may have underlying th themes in their mind that they're not even aware of that shape the direction of an inquiry. And I think one of the cases, whenever I think of a case that has resonated and has continued to resonate for a very long time is that of Madeleine McCann. I, I see William Tyrrell as almost the Australian Madeleine McCann. This is the Portuguese... Well, she was an English girl who was abducted in Portugal, and that's ongoing. Every time there's a lead, it's international headlines, isn't it? And I think, in part, the parents have been driving that bus very effectively. Yeah, and, I mean, she disappeared in May 2007, and she was three years old, so she's literally an equivalent age to William. You'll probably remember all of the pictures that came out of Madeline, or, you know, um, and her siblings, and you're right, the family have very much kept that in the public eye all this time. I mean, 
all my students recognise pictures of Madeleine McCann. There have been age progressions to what she would look like at age eight. One was done and then I think a later one was done to reflect her maturing so that if she is still alive, and we don't know at the moment, then people would have a chance of really potentially still recognising her. But yeah, I mean, millions and millions of pounds were poured into that investigation in the UK for, you know, years and years and years. And it's only recently been scaled back. So again, what is it about a case like Madeleine McCann that, I mean, everyone in Australia... Knows that case. So so why that that one child? Why did her case really go to people's hearts when I can I can guarantee you because I've looked at it other children disappeared in the UK around this or British children disappeared and yet nobody knows them are they photogenic are they white uh, are they sweet and cute and that's not to take anything away from this child or their long-suffering parents but I think it's an ample an adequate demonstration of what we're discussing, that some people fit the victim profile. And I think aesthetics comes into it. It shouldn't, but it does. And probably race does as well. So I think you make a, a really good point about the attract, physical attractiveness of the victim. And I don't mean sexual attractiveness. No. I just mean, you know, have we got beautiful pictures of that person that, again, the media can kind of use to, to kind of build that story around? Because they always need optics, don't they? They do, and the public relate to that. You need photographs. So if we hadn't had those those pictures of William and his Spider-Man suit, would that case have captured the country's attention? Probably not, if we hadn't seen those pictures of Cleo. But it, it helps humanise the case, doesn't it? So I think that's what we, we hold on to. And do you think that sometimes the police can be under added pressure to solve some crimes um, and prioritise those in terms of the resourcing over others because of the, the level of media coverage that the case is receiving? I think that's inevitable. And I think, too, there's a strong desire to solve the case and get the accolades for solving the case. So if it's a high-profile case, everyone wants an answer. If it's a low-profile case or it has no profile at all, where's the motivation to persevere through the thick and thin of it all over many years? And uh, some of these cases, uh, you know, the cold cases, they do go on for many years, generally without a result, but occasionally they get a result. Yeah, well, that was, again, though, champions pushing that case. Headley Thomas. Headley Thomas. He was the journalist behind a podcast downloaded by millions that delved into Lynette Dawson's disappearance in 1982. It prompted new witnesses to come forward who've now testified in Chris Dawson's murder trial. But I think that the, the, the public is under the impression that... that the DPP would not have prosecuted that case without the podcast. And I think that's true, but the police had actually submitted three briefs of evidence regarding Chris Dawson to the DPP. They'd rejected the first two. It was the third brief of evidence that they elected to charge on after the teacher. So the brief was submitted before Teacher's Pet was aired, but they well, charged... Teacher's Pet gave them the impetus yes. to do something about it. I think it would have been very hard for them to reject that that brief of evidence and not charge after the teacher's pet. 
But I don't, it frustrates me slightly that the public think that the police were being inactive in that case. And actually, there were some very dedicated officers who never gave up finding out what had happened to Lynette. And probably had a, a suspicion about who the offender was. Absolutely, they did all the way through. I mean, we had the coronal inquests where the coroners were very clear on whom they thought was guilty. And the police kept working on it. They were extremely dogged. And so they were really doing their best for Lynette and that family, but couldn't get the DPP over the line until the media got involved and leveraged that pressure. So the media has a role to play, a very powerful role to play. It's interesting, isn't it, with social media, podcasts, what we're doing, what others are doing, a strong interest by the general public in true crime. I think all of these dynamics push the boat forward as well. So so who do you think the victims are that most resonate with the public and the media and get that kind of policing resource potentially that not all of them do. And that isn't always the case. Obviously, as I mentioned, the Dawson case, the police were incredibly dogged and hardworking there. So it's not every, you know, it's but potentially which types of victims get that pressure? I think that um, when children are involved, <clears throat> it naturally pricks the conscious and the awareness of... Some children. Yeah. Well, yeah, some children, not all children, but... When some children are involved, if they fit the victim profile, they get a lot of interest. Other people who are killed in strange, bizarre circumstances. Um, the alternative is look at the gay hate crimes in Sydney where there was a lot of agitation. Uh, for a long time, people said, oh, this is just suicide. And uh, it's only been really in recent times that some charges have been laid and uh, there's a recognition that this was occurring. So I think that's really topical because, you know, we've obviously had the recent inquiry into the gay hate crimes and these crimes went back between like 1970 and 2010. You know, it's got a, a long history and yet the policing response has been deemed to be inadequate because, again, I think it reflects some of those prejudices that we've been talking about. Well, I think that's right. And uh, people were marginalised. It's the same dynamic we're discussing. Does it really matter? Uh, why push forward on this? Um, the easiest solution may not be the correct solution, but it gets it gets us off the books. You know, um, I think that's part of it too. So unconscious bias, conscious bias, homophobic bias. I think all those sort of issues are relevant to that case. And obviously this isn't all police officers and we're certainly not saying it is, but what kind of individuals within the police force are likely to be subject to these kind of either subconscious or conscious biases? Look, it could be anyone, couldn't it? Um, you, it's very hard to know what a person's bias is when they're recruited. It's very hard to know how the dynamics within the organisation can shape those biases. Um, people may come in with an open mind about things, but in order to survive, to avoid that dissonance, they play along and become enculturated in that way. I think it's very complex. So do you think there's a culture within parts of the police force that can encourage this type of behaviour? Well, police I've spoken to would say yes. And uh, I remember years ago uh, when I worked at Parramatta Jail, in fact, before I moved to Victoria, I met a number of police and uh, one was referred to me by another policeman and he was having a breakdown because he wanted to be an honest cop. And I'm not suggesting that all New South Wales police back then were dishonest, but he didn't want to take graft. He didn't want to take payments. He just wanted to do his job. 
And he was being ostracised by his peers because you had to take the money because if you didn't, you were always a risk of dobbing these other people in. What happened with him is he resigned from the job. Years later, I used to lecture at uh, detective training school in Melbourne, so aspiring policemen who wanted to become detectives. I didn't get into that sort of culture stuff happening there with the people I spoke to, but they would describe it in others, that there's a lot of sort of peer group pressure to do various types of things, big culture of drinking within the police I was going to say that. I mean, I've worked with the police, oh, since 2008 when I finished my PhD in in the UK. And, you know, at conferences or when you would be working with police, there was a massive culture of drinking and it was very much a kind of boys club. And I was always on the outside slightly being, you know, the forensic expert, so not kind of enmeshed within that. And that was accepted that you were... Um, they were always very polite and, you know, friendly, sure. but you're an outsider, so you're never expected to kind of engage with that. But I certainly saw that a lot. Like, you know, when the police were away, drinking culture was huge. I really hope we're seeing change now, though. Certainly, you know, trainers improve. We've seen increased training in Queensland, for example, around sexual assault and domestic violence, looking at some um, potential improvements that can be made there to reduce the likelihood of especially domestic violence that leads to homicide because we've had some very high-profile cases in Queensland. Hannah Clark, for example, who was murdered with her children. And so I'm, I'm hoping that that culture is changing and I think more people are speaking about it. And we're obviously highlighting what's going on with the police, but this is prevalent in any hierarchical situation. So it happens in academia, it happens in the church, it happens in police, anywhere where you have a very distinct hierarchy. I think there are risks of cultural problems that can impact how those institutions function. And when it's the police, that function is to investigate crime. How do you prioritise a series of murders? Which one's more important than the other? I mean, to me, any murder is important. Somebody's lost a loved one. Someone's been killed. Someone needs to be brought to account. How do you prioritise that? And it's not simply a matter of funding. I think it's also about the sort of issues we've described. Is there press media pressure? Does the profile of the victim uh, fit what's ideal? Are people going to really care and so on? And there's sort of a hierarchy, isn't there? There is, yeah. And um, I talk to my students at the University of Newcastle about this a lot, actually, because we work on cold cases and miscarriages of justice. And and they'll say to me, you know, why are the resources not putting being put into these cold cases? And and then we then I say to them, well, you know, we've got all of these uh, current cases that are ongoing, these recent murders, these recent serial sex offenders, etc., these predators that are out there. And then you have a case that's older. There are no no actual like active leads to follow. Where do you put your resources if you're the police? So making yourself that devil's advocate. If I, as a senior police officer, had a finite number of resources in terms of money and people power to apply to these investigations, would I prioritise the ones that where there's an offender that's at large now, that's a risk to the community, or would I prioritise a 40-year-old cold case? And that's not to diminish the importance of the cold case at all. I work a lot with families in cold cases and I know the trauma that continues on an ongoing basis. It never ends. Never ends. And I know that and I know some of these families very well. And I'm not diminishing that at all. But where do you put your resources? And when I say that to my students, you can see them, the conflict. And they're like, oh, well, I don't know what I would do. Because, you know, where do you put those resources to best effect to help the most number of people? 
thing I'd add to that, there's got to be more excitement with a live case, more motivation, the leads are hotter, and you may have a better likelihood of solving the crime, which is rewarding for the investigator. I can't imagine that it's particularly enlivening to walk into a uh, situation room, and here we've got some files from 30 years ago, trawl them, and recommence the investigation. And the reality is that uh, some of these crimes will never be solved for various reasons. There's a lack of evidence. Evidence has been lost or destroyed. The original investigators are retired or dead. Witnesses are retired or dead. And it's really trying to put life into something that's very difficult to enliven, I think. It's not to say you shouldn't try, and it's not to say that resources shouldn't be put into it, but I can understand why it doesn't happen. And I think that the the media more generally has an important part to play in in true crime as well. I mean, I've worked on a number of documentaries that have looked back at cases that have really drawn attention to some issues with the original police investigation. So I think that the media, especially long format journalism, and we've worked on a number of long format documentaries together, I think that mechanism, that platform has a way of keeping accountability in the system and some transparency, um, you know, so that the police and the investigators are being held to account when things don't go well and changes do need to be made to the way investigations happen. And Barrowville is an ultimate example of that. Well, that's another. But, of course, the police who run the show now and Bell Connor and the ACT and other places, they weren't part of the original investigative team. And that's part of the problem too. With the fluxion of time, people move on. But I agree with you, you know, people need to be more focused, brought to account and understand that uh, every life matters. What are the takeaways from all of this? We've looked at police culture, we've looked at the ideal victim, We've looked at reasons why some cases may be investigated ahead of others. We've looked at cognitive dissonance and conscious and unconscious bias. It's a fascinating area. What do you think? I mean, what are the solutions to all this, do you think? Well, I think that the public has a part to play here, don't they? So we can all choose what we're engaging with, what podcasts we're listening to, what social media we're engaging with. We can choose to support the additional victims, to give others their voice. And I think, so I think the way we react to these cases is important and remembering that each victim is as important as the others. And I was absolutely thrilled when Cleo Smith was found, but I will be equally thrilled if the Bowerville cases are ever solved, you know, and I think we have to, those, you know, we have to stop that othering. We have to, you know, we have to engage more and I guess try and give our hearts equally to all these victims because they're equally as deserving. For us, true crime is the sausage and potatoes of our life. I mean, we live and breathe it. We get paid to do it. We're involved in a 24-7 in many ways. I think it's a mistake to assume that uh, all people in the general public share the passion. They have other lives, other jobs, and consequently, it's probably just the more high-profile ones that are driven by the media that perhaps have the hook to engage them more so than other cases because they have other lives to live and probably some of the cases they just don't want to know about it. I think it's down to the next generation too. I mean, at, at the University of Newcastle, we're really passionate about social justice and training the students to to think about the victims and survivors and their families and their stories and to think about the true crime and what they're engaging with and consuming and making sure that they're making responsible 
decisions because they are the next generation of people and many of them want to join the police and they want to join community corrections, corrective services, juvenile justice. And so they... And be psychologists. A lot, yeah. We've got a lot of students studying criminology who want to be psychologists and a lot of law students too. And so they really are the change makers of the future. And if they can go out with an open mind, recognising the harm that crime causes to victims and taking that sense of equity with them, then I've done my job properly. And to not be overwhelmed by the existent culture. I've seen this happen, you know, where people come in full of idealism, but because of sheer numbers and historical cultural nuances, uh, the same dissonance occurs where they either fit in or they don't. It's like when I started working in the prison, you know, uh, a long time ago, I was seen initially, as were other psychologists, by the prison officers as a do-gooder and a crim lover. And for a time, I was seen by the prisoners as somebody not to be trusted because I wasn't in a green uniform. And so you have to be mindful of that and I think work consistently and reliably to overcoming those inherent biases within the culture and then you can affect change. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can subscribe to our channel and feed. You could give us a five-star review or recommend us to friends and family. And if you want to be notified when the new app drops, you can also set up an alert. We'll be back next week. I'm Tim Watson-Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. Thank you for listening.